Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. This morning, I want us to uh, invite you to turn with me back to Isaiah. And we're looking at Isaiah chapter 24 to 27, but we're really not going to get into the text itself this morning. We are going to lay some foundational theological ground here, clear some theological ground, so that when we come to this passage uh, in greater detail... Uh, in the coming weeks, that it makes a little more sense to us. Uh, Last Sunday, we wrapped up in chapter 23, looking at, um, and and that was the end of a a series of oracles that we studied, uh, kind of surveyed in 13 to 23, uh, that Isaiah gave against the Gentile nations of the ancient Near Eastern world of his day. Uh, And we pointed out that these 11 chapters take us behind the scenes of human history, they allow us to see that, that Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, is the sovereign Lord of human history. And we commented that the, the big picture contribution that these chapters make to our understanding of God and, and his will and his ways is to teach us that all the nations and all the events of human history, from the most significant to the least noticeable, the most mundane All of those events are under the sovereign control of the triune God. Yahweh is the God of heaven and earth. And therefore, we said it is pointless to look to earthly power. It is pointless to put our trust in earthly possessions or earthly politics as a savior. Rather, God's people must build the foundation of their lives on the word of God, Jesus Christ, and, of course, the written an infallible word of God given to us in the pages of Scripture. So these chapters, as as we have said before and reiterate, serve a timeless purpose, a life-giving principle for the church in every age, and they are meant to impress upon our hearts that, that our God is providentially directing every molecule in the universe toward the consummation of his eternal kingdom. Everything is moving toward an appointed end. As Psalm 115 and verse 3 says, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And while it is tempting to look to the nations, to look to our own abilities and our own resourcefulness at times, or even uh, to trust in our earthly possessions and what we have, we must not do that. We cannot do that because they are a false hope. They will not be there to save us when we need them most. No human agency, no earthly efforts, no worldly wealth is able to thwart, and this is what we take away from these chapters, the Holy One of Israel from accomplishing his kingdom program. And that's what I want us to consider in some detail this morning. The concept of the kingdom of God, that concept in scripture, in a very real sense, unifies all of the Bible. Uh, And God's kingdom program is seen in five parts, and it acts like a rope that kind of traces its way all the way from the beginning in Genesis to the end of the Bible in Revelation. I just want us to, we've talked about this before, but it's worth reiterating that from the very beginning, the opening chapter of Genesis, the kingdom is presented with creation itself. Uh, God, the king, has delegated in creation to his image bearers, mankind, 
this responsibility to rule and to subdue the creation. We see that explained in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, right? Genesis uh, 1.27, God says to Adam, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. So the kingdom program of God begins with creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Second, we see the fall of man recorded, and it is we see in chapter 3, God's creation is corrupted as man fails to fulfill that mandate and uh, rebels against the revealed will of God. And we see that in Genesis chapter 3, 1 to 14. We see the fall of man. Thirdly, from Genesis 3 verse 15 all the way to the end of the Old Testament in Malachi is, we could put under that heading, promise. Promise is the key word there. God's promise plan guarantees that the seed of the woman, this offspring of the woman, will eventually succeed over the power behind the serpent, which is, of course, Satan. The curse of sin is rever- will be reversed, at least that's promise. Man will again rule over creation as God intended in the beginning. So we see all that kind of unfolding in Genesis 3, uh, 15, all the way to the end of Malachi. Fourth, Jesus, the king, brings redemption through his atoning work at the cross. His death, his resurrection are the foundation for the kingdom and the future reconciliation that will take place for um, a remnant of the people. For And we see that uh, described for us in Matthew, book of Matthew, all the way through Jude. When Jesus breaks onto the scene in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, it says that he came after John was arrested and he says that, The time is fulfilled, and Jesus said, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So he came preaching redemption. He came preaching the good news of the kingdom. And fifth, as the the word of God draws to a close, we see the restoration of all things explained to us. God's plan, his kingdom plan is fulfilled as Jesus now successfully reigns over the earth. We see that in uh, Revelation 19 and 20. And then this... Uh, intermediate kingdom merges into the perfect and eternal kingdom of the Father in Revelation 21 and 22. And so in a sense, as you look at Revelation, what you see, you could say the entire book describes how the kingdom of God triumphs over the kingdom of Satan. In fact, Revelation 11 and verse 15 gathers this idea up. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ." and he will reign forever and ever. So you could summarize the entire storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation into five parts, creation, fall, promise, redemption, and restoration. That is really the the structure of the word of God. And all of it, all of it is centered on Jesus the king. The kingdom created becomes the kingdom fallen, which leads ultimately to the kingdom restored. So every portion of scripture, like pieces in a bigger puzzle, fills in this unfolding story as we think about the word of God. Uh, and, uh, and each part is contributing its own specific part in God's revelation. And Isaiah's piece of the puzzle centers prominently on that promise portion that we just outlined in the middle. Uh, He is looking back, Isaiah is looking back at the failure of God's people stemming from their rebellious and sinful hearts, and he's also looking ahead to God's promised redemption and his restoration of all things uh, 
as he accomplishes salvation for his people. And so that brings us to the section we are in this morning in Isaiah chapter 24 to 27. The one true and living God is presented in this section of Scripture as the sovereign Lord of history, and that means that he and he alone is moving all things toward his appointed end. And that is, the end is the establishment of his eternal kingdom. Like, that's where it's all going. So I think these chapters, what we see in them is, is, and hopefully you've read them, and if you haven't, I would encourage you to go back and read them this week. These chapters describe a worldwide, worldwide judgment in chapter 24 that gives way to a worldwide kingdom in 25 to 27. At this climactic moment, uh, God's uniqueness and superiority above all earthly and heavenly powers is unmistakable. You can't miss it. The Lord, he describes for us, will purge the earth. He will judge the wicked. He will banish death forever, and he will receive the remnant's praises. There is, at, the end of the, at the end of human history, no other God is on the scene. Yahweh alone opens eternity to his people. The Lord's judgment we see here is against all the nations. So that reiterates for us that his justice is the universal standard. People love to rail against God's righteousness, his universal standard of justice by saying, I could never worship a God who does this or a God who allows these things to happen or who claims to be the only way of salvation, as the gospel makes clear. And what these chapters make clear to us is that what those people think is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. God is who he is. And, and he, has, he is who he has always been, and he is who he will always be for all eternity. That's his name. Yahweh, the one who is. I am who I am. It doesn't matter what people think about God. He is who he is. And so in many ways, I think chapters 24 to 27 are a fitting conclusion to these oracles that have been given in 13 to 23. Because at the end of the age, all that will remain is God and his kingdom and his holy people. That is all that will remain. Whatever else you put your trust in, that is swept aside. The one God who created history will also, as we'll see in these chapters, recreate it. But that said, these concepts of the kingdom of God and the people of God in a massive book like Isaiah those concepts, those ideas are confusing, and they're often misunderstood. For example, where is the kingdom of God? That's a question that we, we might have as we read through Isaiah and, and other portions of the scriptures. Is it, is it in Israel? Is it the whole world? Um, what about these other nations? We've got Egypt and Assyria, and we just learned about Tyre last week. Um, are they part of the kingdom? And if so, how? Um, and then the question of who are the people of that kingdom? Are they just, is it just Jews? Is it Jews and Gentiles? Um, is someone a part of that kingdom because of where they're born? Or how do you become part of the kingdom of God? What is distinguishing mark of a kingdom citizen? Like these are the questions that we wrestle with. These are the questions that I'm wrestling with as I'm studying through the, the text and trying to understand these portions of the word of God. These are, these are things we wrestle with and they are concepts that are, uh, if we're honest, they're fuzzy in our minds. They're not sharp. We don't understand them. And they make studying the prophets 
less than profitable, if I may use a, 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 a turn of a phrase. My goal then this morning is to help, hopefully, burn away a little of the fog, <laughs> burn away a bit of the fog, just as the kingdom of God becomes sort of the entry point to unify and clarify the whole of God's word, the kingdom of God becomes an entry point to unify and clarify the book of Isaiah. And if you've ever moved to a new city, you've come to a new area, most likely it is, it's been helpful for you to identify some key landmarks as you've come to that new city, you know. Um, and, and what those do is they allow you to get your bearings, at least in a preliminary way, and then over time you fill in the picture. They help you understand uh, what the place is like and what makes it distinct. And, and that's what the kingdom of God concept does for us as, in the scriptures as a whole, but it also uh, does that, I think, in a helpful way for the book of Isaiah. These themes that we'll see in the book and we'll encounter in, der- in various portions, uh, this theme of the kingdom of God, uh, God the king, excuse me, his leading agents, the, 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 the Davidic ruler, the suffering servant, the, the spirit-anointed messenger, who are all the same person but are described in different parts, this realm, the realm of the kingdom, the people of God's kingdom, those are the signposts that Isaiah has put throughout the book that help us orient ourselves to God's message through Isaiah. But if we don't read the signposts, if we can't read the signposts, or we misread, misinterpret the meaning of the signposts, then we are essentially cutting ourselves off from a, a wealth of spiritual truth that I think is stored up for us uh, in the Scripture and specifically as it relates to the prophetic portions of the Scripture. We cannot get a clear perspective of things without understanding the signposts, and that's, that's what I want us to consider this morning and again next week because as I was working through this, I realized I had too much material, so we're just going to keep expanding. So I, want, I said in my email we were going to answer uh, two questions. Where is the kingdom of God and who are the people of God, uh, of that kingdom? This morning, actually, we're actually just going to answer the question, where is the kingdom of God? <laughs> and next week, we'll cover who are the people of the kingdom. So I want us to consider, uh, ask and answer first the question, where is God's kingdom? Where is God's kingdom? Because God's kingdom, according to Isaiah, and as we'll see, you know, you can trace this throughout the rest of Scripture, is not comprised of a bunch of bodiless spirits floating around in the ether. Right? It is not a bunch of immaterial people in a dis, uh, disconnected way, in a distributed sense. God's kingdom, God's kingdom occupies a place with embodied people dwelling in it. This is essential to what it means to be fully human. God created us as human beings, both body and soul, in a created universe where we live and move and have our being. We wake up and we sleep and we, you know, we work and vacation, we cry and laugh. We endure trials and enjoy triumphs in the physical spaces that we inhabit on the earth. This notion of place is foundational to our creatureliness, and it's laid out for us from the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, both in a general sense and a particular sense. Genesis 1, um, we see described by Moses the creation of man and, 
and the woman, how that occurs, uh, that occurs. And then after that creation, God, after God has made heaven and earth, night and day, sea and land, plants and animals, then he places man, creates man and places him in that, in that place. He didn't make man first and wonder, I wonder where I'm going to put him when this is all done. Right? He instead created the whole earth for man and then man himself from the earth and instructed him in a general sense, as we saw earlier, to rule over, fill, you know, multiply, and subdue the earth. But then as we come to chapter 2, there's a, there's a shift. Genesis 2 um, revisits the details of creation. And, and we see uh, in Genesis 2 a more particularized notion of place that unfolds. As Moses describes creation of Adam and later Eve and his placement of Adam and Eve together in the garden, a specific garden where he gave them a further instruction. So my point is this, to be fully human, according to Genesis 1 and 2, in an earth that is very good is to exist in a place, in a relationship with God in that place. So it's interesting then when Adam and Eve fall, when they plunge themselves and all of creation into sin, what happens? They are forced out of the garden. They are forced out of the garden, and the rest of Scripture centers its promises around a land, uh, preparation for entering that land, uh, inhabiting that land, losing it again through exile and covenant unfaithfulness, and then ultimately a climactic recovery of it in the future with God and his people inhabiting a new heaven and a new earth. So Genesis 1 and 2 lay out this twofold framework concerning place. The universal component, which is kind of highlighted in chapter 1 of Genesis, and a particular component in Eden in chapter 2. And that, I think, is a helpful framework. It is foundational to answering this question, where is the kingdom of God? I bring all this up to say, where is the kingdom, to answer this question. In other words, there is a universal scope to God's kingdom, and there is a particular focal point to God's kingdom, as it's described to us in Isaiah and elsewhere on the pages of Scripture. God's kingdom is universal in that it encompasses all of heaven and earth, Right? In the, that, all of heaven and earth is the realm of God's sovereign rule. But at the same time, God's kingdom uh, will be particularized with Jerusalem as its center point in the future. So I want to I drill down on both of those realities, the universal aspect of God's kingdom and the particular aspect of God's kingdom. First, the universal realm, of, as we think about the whole universe as the universal realm of God's kingdom. Again, as we're going through chapters 13 to 23, we've emphasized that God is the creator and sustainer of heaven and earth, that all the nations are under his sovereign control. And this is essential to understanding that the realm of God's kingdom is everywhere. It's everywhere. And Isaiah captures this universal idea in chapter 37, for example, as he prays. Remember, Hezekiah and Judah are under assault by the Assyrians. And here, listen to what Isaiah prays in chapter 37 and verse 16. He says, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. 
So as he prays, Isaiah affirms that God is the supreme God over all the nations, over everything. And that means that his royal power extends over the Assyrians, for sure, because they are the ones that are kind of knocking at the door. But that every other earthly threat or power was under God's control as well. Later on, we see an even clearer declaration that God's kingdom extends throughout the whole world in Isaiah chapter 66 in verse 1, where the Lord says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? Again, the imagery is, is insignificant. God's throne in heaven that he describes here speaks of his royal and sovereign power. It looks, it actually calls our attention back to chapter 6. You remember in chapter 6, where Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, this vision that he had of, the, of, uh, of God. Heaven is his throne, but he says God's footstool, the realm over which he exercises dominion is where? The earth, the entire earth. So the question is, how far does God's jurisdiction reach? Where's the realm of God's kingdom? God's reign is over heaven and earth. Every created thing is under his domain. But this creates a tension as we read the scriptures and as we read the prophets, because we see clearly in Isaiah and elsewhere that God's kingdom is universal. We understand that, um, you know, it, it wraps its arm around all of heaven and earth. And yet, Isaiah makes clear, and our experience confirms, that all things are not operating in joyful submission to God in the present. So, the kingdom fallen has not yet become the kingdom restored. And Isaiah speaks of God's universal kingship. Uh, that he, extend, he speaks about it as extending over all of heaven and earth, while at the same time, he anticipates a future day when the perfect son of David will come down in heavenly glory and God's universal reign will be fully realized. So the question becomes, how do we fit these two pieces together? Where God has a universal reign over everything presently, and yet there is a future point in which his um, kingdom will have a, a definite uh, point, uh, a particular focus and focal point. And that leads us to the second reality. We've talked about the universal scope of the kingdom of God, but we want to see, secondly, that Zion is the particularized, particularized realm of God's kingdom. We look to the prophets, and as we read the prophets, they point us to Jerusalem as the unique and specific realm of God's kingdom. The primary way Isaiah's audience, and even you and I, grasp what God's universal kingdom will be like is as we zoom in on the particularized realm of God's reign in Jerusalem. Uh, look with me, if you will. Turn with me to uh, Isaiah 65. 65 and verse 17. There's a, there's a parallelism here that is significant as we understand this whole idea of the kingdom of God. Verse 17, Isaiah says, For behold, this is God speaking, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. So, as the creator of heaven and earth, um, in Genesis 1 and 2, God's given us every reason to believe that when he says he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, that we can take him at his word. 
This is God's promise. I will create a new heaven and a new earth. What will that look like? Well, look at verse 18. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. And behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her peoples for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. Verse 21, they will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like the ox and the dust will be the serpent's food and they will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. I want you to notice there's a parallel between God's creation of a new heaven and a new earth in verse 17 and God's creation of a particular, new creation of a particular place, Jerusalem in verses 18 and following. In the new Jerusalem, all is as it should be, as we just read. There's no more crying. There's no more injustice or oppression. Uh, The created order seems to be turned upside down at the end there in verse 25. There's no more pain. There's no more conflict. And so the question we have to ask is why? Why does God focus particularly on Jerusalem's future conditions when he's talking about one day creating a new heaven and a new earth? And the answer to that question is that what God does in Jerusalem is a sample of what he will do throughout the entire heaven and earth in the future kingdom. So Jerusalem in the prophets and elsewhere is a microcosm of the universal realm of God's kingdom. Let me illustrate it for you in this way because it probably seems a little obscure with this connection we're making. Imagine if God said, I'm going to create a new world. And then he says this, in Washington, D.C., in the surrounding suburbs, there will no longer be any hospitals because there'll be no sick people. And, um, and everyone will be gainfully employed and have more than they need to enjoy a peaceful life. Um, people in southern, uh, southeast D.C. will have the same opportunities as people in Great Falls. Uh, The mall will no longer, you know, the mall there will no longer be a place for protests and clashes with law enforcement because violence and conflict will cease. I mean, that's his description. In that made-up scenario, God's description of what life will be like in the greater D.C. region is, is representative of what life will be like throughout the whole world. And in the same way, Isaiah and the prophets descriptions of what life will be like in God's particular realm, in Zion, allow us as the reader, as his hearers would have understood, to envision what the new creation will look like across the entire globe. And you say, does that mean that Zion and Jerusalem um, is just symbolic? Could God have chosen Samaria or Damascus or Cairo or Babylon or something like that to uh, illustrate and and help us envision what the kingdom will be like? And the answer is no. Because ever since David chose Jerusalem to be Israel's capital and Mount Zion was chosen as the place of God's unique presence in his temple, the Lord's 
presence as king has been inextricably linked to a particular realm. Yes, Jerusalem is symbolic. I'll even concede that it's representative of the entire world, but Jerusalem is an actual place. And it's a geographical reference point that orients the whole world around God's sovereign rule. So as we read through Isaiah, God's kingdom is universal in scope, but the worldwide scope of God's kingdom has a center point, a focal point in the future, and that focal point is Jerusalem. Jerusalem becomes a hub around which the rest of, the, of God's kingdom orbits. And this is the picture we see throughout the book of Isaiah. Go back to chapter 2. Look at chapters 2, verse, uh, two verses 2 to 4. It says, now it will come about that in the last days, so we, clearly Isaiah is looking to the distant future. In the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. The picture here is of all the nations streaming into Zion to learn God's instruction and God's rule clearly extends beyond the boundaries of Israel. It clearly extends beyond the boundaries of Judah to all the nations of the earth in that future day. If you turn then to our, our, our text, really, when we get to it, in chapter 24 and 25, we see God enacting a worldwide judgment. And, and all the nations, uh, God can, he's able to do that. God can enact a worldwide, and enact a worldwide judgment and all the nations can stream into Jerusalem in chapter 25, verses 6 to 8, to, to participate in this glorious celebration of God's kingdom manifest on earth. And the reason he can do that is at the end of verse 20, uh, chapter 24 and verse 23. Why is God able to do this? For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Again, in chapter 66, as we come to the end of the book of Isaiah, in verses 18 to 24, he says, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. This is God speaking. I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations, Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshech, Tubal, and Javan, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory and they will declare my glory among the nations then they will sh then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the lord on horses and chariots and litters on mules and on camels to my holy mountain jerusalem says the lord just as the sons of israel currently he says bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the lord i will also take some of them these people from the nations, for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I made, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure 
and it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be in an abhorrence to all mankind. So the book ends, it concludes, where all the nations are coming to God's holy mountain to worship before him. So again, this, and you can look at the other prophets as well, Jerusalem is clearly the hub, the focal point of an international worldwide kingdom. That continues even as you move into the New Testament. As you come to the New Testament, on this side of the cross, the New Testament describes Jesus, what? Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And calling people to repent and believe for the time is at hand. The, the New Testament itself describes the good news of the kingdom, which starts out in Jerusalem and goes out quickly, almost immediately, to the uh, uttermost parts of the world. And as Christ's body, the church, advances and spreads worldwide, the realm of God's kingdom takes on a more universal focus between Christ's first and second coming. God's reign in, is worldwide now, but it is placed locally in individual assemblies of those who have been united to Christ by faith and indwelt with the Spirit. So together, Paul says the church is growing into a holy temple, God's dwelling place in the Spirit, as he tells us in Ephesians 2. But as the end of the age approaches, the Apostle John in Revelation reiterates this twofold framework that we have seen in Genesis and in Isaiah and the prophets, he is intertwining the universal and the particular vantage points of the kingdom of God, speaking about the where of God's future kingdom. God's reign over all the earth is universal now. We see that in Revelation 4 and 5. But God's kingdom program will be fully realized in a new heaven and a new earth. And we see that in Revelation 21 and 22. God's rule over the nations will be particularized in a new Jerusalem. Revelation 21, I saw no te- verse 22, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. I mean, that's, I mean, if you look back at Isaiah, this is exactly the way Isaiah describes the future kingdom. The new Jerusalem will be the hub, the center point of the new creation, with the nations coming from across the globe to bring glory to God who reigns supreme. And again, John's vision corresponds with how the Bible begins in Revelation 1 and 2, how Isaiah and the prophets describe the realm of God's kingdom in the prophets, in the, in the writings, and then we see again, Revelation ends the same way. So to come back to our original question, where is God's kingdom? The answer is, it depends on which vantage point the authors of Scripture are looking at it. It's context-driven, but these are the things we know for sure. First, it is placed. It's not just floating out there in the ether. It's placed. 
It's placed in the garden. It is placed in, uh, in Israel under the old covenant. It is placed in the local church as the gospel goes forward. And it is placed in, Jeru- in a new heaven and a new earth in Jerusalem. So we know that. Secondly, sometimes when we think about the kingdom of God, the scriptures talk about it in a universal sense. When we see the term described or speaks of the kingdom, the writers of scripture will talk about the universal realm of God's of sovereign rule, that it encompasses every molecule of heaven and earth, which he is directing to his purposes and end. And sometimes, depending on the context, the author is speaking about it in the particular. When they talk about the kingdom of God, though God reigns universally over all creation, his kingdom plan culminates in a particular place, a new Jerusalem, which is the center point and hub of an international worldwide kingdom from which all the nations of the earth, Jew and Gentile, will be blessed. So it just depends. And I think the confusion is that because the authors move from one to the other at times, we get confused and we don't understand how to think about these things. So what is the takeaway for you and for me? We've answered, at least I've tried to answer this question, where is God's kingdom? But why does it matter? Why does it matter? A couple of things, a few things. First, it matters because we need to rightly divide the word of truth. It matters because we need to understand what the word of God says. He's given us his word to know it, to glorify him in all that we do. Um, And I said at the outset, if we can't read the signposts or we misread the signposts, as we study the word, then we cut ourselves off from all the spiritual riches that are just anchored there in the text. And uh, we, we miss the, the value of the prophets because we don't understand how to interpret them or, or make sense of what they're saying. So it's important because we want to just get it right. We want to understand the word of God rightly. But beyond that, secondly, it matters because the one who's put their faith in Jesus Christ... Uh, understands that God's universal reign as king is ongoing now and is coming in the future, and it is centered in a new Jerusalem. And that reality is a strong encouragement for us to press on in persevering faith. You know, we can remain steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the Lord's work, no matter what is going around going on around us in the world, because even though God will one day shake heaven and earth, and we're going to see that as we get to chapter 24 of Isaiah. I mean, the, the, from verse 4, to I think it's to verse 13, are some of the most terrifying descriptions of God's judgment in all of Scripture. Even though God will one day shake heaven and earth in judgment, you and I can trust that we are receiving, as the writer of Hebrews says, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so we can stay uh, uh, steadfast and not become fearful. Alongside that, we preach the gospel of the kingdom with courage and with confidence, calling people to repentance and faith in the risen king who lives and calls all men everywhere to repent. We we, we talk about this uh, king, this Davidic king, but he's also described in Isaiah as the Lord's servant who was pierced through on the cross for our transgressions. He was the one who was crushed for our iniquities. We tell people how a holy God caused the sin of us all to fall on him and how by his wounds we can be healed as we look to him in humble, childlike faith. I mean, part of the 
the reality of understanding the kingdom of God is the message of the kingdom and calling people to turn to Christ before it's too late. And I think a third takeaway, particularly for those who have not come to Christ, is the reality is that if you have not hidden your life with Christ by faith, you have no part of God's future kingdom. Where every tear will be wiped away, in God's kingdom there will no longer be any death or mourning or crying or pain. You know, when God in Christ will make all things new, um, everything will be radically transformed, but you, you will have no part in that. Only those who overcome in faith will inherit these things, John says. Only those who have bowed the knee to Christ will be welcomed as sons and daughters in the kingdom. Revelation 21 verse 8 says, those who are not part of the kingdom, the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, which is basically describing us before Christ. Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. But that doesn't have to be the final judgment on your life. That does not have to be the final judgment on your life because John goes on to say in chapter 22 that the spirit and the bride say, come. And the one, let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost, come. The gates of the city, as John says, and access to the tree of life are made available to those who have come to Christ by faith. And so John's revelation of God's future kingdom it ends with a passionate appeal for the wayward and the rebellious to throw themselves on God's mercy and grace and become kingdom citizens. That's the that's the final call. And so if that's you this morning, I would encourage you not to delay because the message of invitation has been given. It's been given to us by John it is given to us throughout Isaiah, and it is given to us even from the very beginning in Genesis 3. We see the promise seed will come and make God's kingdom program uh, bring it to completion. And so we need to understand what is the kingdom of God, but inextricably linked to what, where is the kingdom of God is this question, who are the people of God? And that We'll have to wait until next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kingdom program laid out for us in the pages of Scripture. We see that um, even though we started off well and failed, there is such truth uh, contained in the promises of God that you will not leave us in our rebellion and destruction. You have sent your son, Jesus, to live, to die, to rise again, that we might have redemption the forgiveness of sins. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us to understand that your kingdom program is still moving forward. Though all around us seems to be falling apart, and, uh, and, and sometimes it feels like the wheels are coming off, we understand that you're the sovereign Lord of history. Everything is under your control. We don't need to be fearful. We don't need to be, uh, we don't need to be reactive, but we can be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in your work. Lord, help us to proclaim the message of the kingdom. Help us to call sinners into that kingdom hope that we have. And may you draw hearts to you even this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.